Habakkuk. How many of you know about Habakkuk? All right. We've got a few people that have read it. Uh, it, Yeah, it is in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It's one of those little short books. Three chapters, 56 verses. It's a book that I first studied some 40 years ago. And I fell in love with it. And I read it regularly. Because it has so much to say about who our God is and what our relationship with Him is. For those of you who are not familiar with the book, let me just give a little background. Um, The time, probably around 608, 609 B.C., (coughs) the northern kingdom uh, of Israel, the ten tribes, had uh, been wiped out by Assyria in 722 because all of their leadership were bad. Some were worse than others, but they were all bad. In the south, um, we had a number of good leaders who were godly men who brought their people back to God. And Josiah was the last one of those. Uh, He had died a few years before, and his son Jehoiakim, who was a very evil, wicked, bad, and nasty guy, was on the throne. And he was leading his people away from God. The characters in the book of Habakkuk are really very simple. God, Habakkuk. Only the two. Um, Verse 1 indicates that Habakkuk was a prophet. And the last verse of chapter 3 refers to his stringed instruments, which usually was the function of a priest in the temple, which would mean that he was also a Levite. We know nothing else about Habakkuk. He's never mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. Um, In every other prophetic book in the Bible, God spoke to the prophet, the prophet spoke to the people. But in Habakkuk, we just find a little short dialogue between God and Habakkuk. Um, Time is short here this morning, so I will summarize rather than reading a lot of the verses. When I got up yesterday morning, I still had about an hour and a half of material. And so I sat down and rewrote everything I was going to say. There's just so much in there that I love that I wanted to share with everybody. But I tried to bring it down to to a reasonable amount. I didn't see anybody bring sack lunches in this morning. So I figured if I didn't, I would lose everybody anyway. Uh, It starts out in verse 1, the oracle of God or a communication from God given for man's guidance, which Habakkuk the prophet saw. Verses 2 through 4, Habakkuk says, Lord, how long do I have to keep this up, crying out to you like this? You do nothing about it. I've been watching for a change, watching for an outbreak of revival watching for something to happen, yet nothing happens. How long must I continue? The book of Habakkuk deals with the great question of why God allows certain things to happen. I don't know of any more up-to-date or relevant question than that. As you read through the prophecy of Habakkuk, you'll discover that the problem he wrestled with and eventually learn the answer to is the same problem that you and I wrestle with today. For the prophet lived in a time very similar to our day, 
a time when everything seemed to be going wrong. He lived when there was great national corruption and distress, when the nation and the land was filled with violence, with hatred, with outbreaks of evil everywhere. And I can't think of any period in U.S. history when there has been so much corruption and distress, when the nation and the land was filled with violence and hatred and outbreaks of evil as what we're living in today. For example, Roe v. Wade in 1973. Since that date, we have seen over 58 million babies murdered. That's more than the entire population of California, Nevada, Colorado, Arizona, and New Mexico combined. California, Nevada, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico. Wipe all the people off the map. We have murdered that many babies. We turn to the courts for justice, and they're corrupt making their own laws instead of basing their judgments on the Constitution. Instead of sitting down together and trying to work out our differences and find solutions, we see animosity, infighting, as has never been seen in the history of our country. And these situations include many who claim to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Just as you and I are distressed at what is going on in our country, or at least should be, Habakkuk was also distressed about what was happening in Judah. His distress is reflected in the opening phrases of the book. Why, Habakkuk says, says, does he have to cry violence and hear no answer from God? Here is a great problem of unanswered prayer. Here is a man who is disturbed about his nation. He sees everything that's going on. The people are living in wickedness. There is unrest, violence, injustice, and oppression throughout the land. Those who have the responsibility to correct this do nothing. When the whole matter is brought before the courts, the courts themselves are morally corrupt. So Habakkuk is greatly troubled. He is a man of God and he knows that the thing to do with the problem is to take it to God. And he's been doing that. He's been praying about the problem, but he does not get any answer. So his perplexed heart in bewilderment cries out, Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever prayed about something and you can't see the answer? Look around at our nation and you can see everything breaking up. The shaking of long-standing foundations. People turning away from the faith and questioning things that have never been questioned before. People are expressing doubts, even outright unbelief, in circles where doubts have never been expressed before. Have you been praying for loved ones, wanting to see God change them and reach their hot lives, and nothing happens? This is a problem of unanswered prayer. It's a great problem, and it perplexes the prophet. But now in verse 5, God begins to answer Habakkuk. The amazing thing about this prophecy that it is not addressed to the people at all. Rather, this is just a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. That's why it's so up to date. 
Every one of us is named Habakkuk. And each of us faces a problem from time to time. God says, I've been answering your prayer, Habakkuk. You accuse me of silence, but I've not been silent. You just do not know how to recognize my answer. I've been answering, but the answer is so different from what you expect that you will not even recognize it or believe it when I tell you. But let me tell you what it is. Going on in verse 6, God says that he is preparing to raise up the nation of Chaldeans. Now at the time that Habakkuk wrote, the Chaldeans and Babylonians were not a very important group. The great nation that frightened all other nations and ruled as a great tyrant of the world that day was Assyria with its capital Nineveh. And should you be questioning if God could be the author of evil in doing this, may I refer you to the text of Job 1 and 2? Those two chapters of Job will show you who the real author of evil really is. But here's a little nation that is beginning to rise up in world history. And God says to the prophet, I am behind this. These people are very strange people. They are bitter, hostile, ruthless, cold-blooded. Can you think of anyone like that today? They are going to be as powerful as any nation on earth has ever been. And they will sweep through the land, conquering everything. And it will look as though nothing can stop them. These people will not have any God at the center of their life. They believe that their own might is their God. And they trust in their own strength. I am behind the rise of this people. And this is the answer to your prayer. Now, that is a little astonishing, isn't it? Evidently, Habakkuk did not know what to make of this. There's a moment of silence here. And then he begins to reflect. If he thought he had a problem to start with, he really has one now. Now he is battling in the major leagues when it comes to problems. For now, how will God solve the original one by creating a major problem such as this? This is what bothers many people today as they look at what is happening in the world. The thing that has threatened the faith of so many has been the problem of history. Why does God allow things to happen the way they do? Why does he permit such terrible events to occur in human history? Questions we hear a lot today. How can a just or loving God allow men to suffer? Why would God create us and then allow disease and starvation and war and all those other terrible things. There are many who ask that question today, and many whose faith is actually faltering because of it. They are saying, how can this be? What kind of a universe do we live in? Of course, there are others that are quick to supply an answer. They say, well, the answer is that there is no God, and it is no use thinking there is one. We're living in a machine-like universe with ponderously clanking gears and nobody really knows what makes it operate. Chance put it all together. You only fool yourself when you imagine a father image out of the desire of your heart and you call it God. They say this because of the apparent inactivity of God. 
The ways of God are full of mystery to us. We have to recognize that there are times when we just cannot understand how God is moving. It does not seem to make sense. And the instruments he chooses are sometimes sort of out of the ordinary. God is so unorthodox. He is always doing things the wrong way and picking the wrong people and operating in the most surprising fashion. Things did I? Okay. One of the things that you learn about God after you live with him for a while is that he is always doing the unexpected. It's not because he delights to puzzle us, but because the variety of his workings are so infinite that our feeble human minds cannot grasp them. It's like an ant trying to understand a human. That was a problem that affected Habakkuk. He was puzzled by this strange silence. And then when he heard how God was moving, he could not understand that either. But now he does a very wise thing. And the next section of the book is an important passage because it tells us how to handle this kind of problem. What would you do when you're confronted with this sort of threat to your faith? When you see what looks like inaction on God's part, and then maybe you see that he is acting, but in a way that seems utterly unbelievable. What do you do? One of the great needs in our Christian life is to understand the method of approaching problems like this. And the method can be outlined very simply. There are four simple steps. And as we go on, you will see how the prophet follows them through. First of all, stop and think. Do not react emotionally to the problem. Do not let panic grip you or some terrible fear come over you. Stop and think. All right, what are we supposed to think about? Second, restate to yourself the basic things that you know about God. Do not try to solve the problem immediately. Back away from it and begin with God. What you know about God, go back to what you know about God and His character as it has been revealed to you in the revelation and by experience. Step three, take what you know about the character of God and bring it to bear on the problem. And finally, if you have not come to an answer, leave the rest with faith in God and ask Him to show it to you. Notice how the prophet does this. First, he starts thinking about God in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Habakkuk has reminded himself of some of the great things in that statement. Are you not from everlasting? The first thing he thinks about is that God, he knows, is an everlasting God. God is aware of but exists outside of time. In the beginning, God. When time began, God already was. When time ends, He will still remain. God, He is the God of eternity. That's the first thing the prophet reminds himself of. When these Chaldeans come, they will trust in their own might as their God. Oh yes, Habakkuk says, but my God is not like that. 
My God is not one of these localized tribal deities. He is the God who covers history, who himself governs these events, the everlasting God. Second, the prophet reminds himself that God is the self-existent one because he uses a a very special name for God. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God? Now anytime you see the word Lord in Scripture in all caps, you probably already know all of this, but it's a translation of the Hebrew word for Jehovah. I am that I am. The great name that God revealed to Moses when he was at the burning bush and later in Egypt. At that time he said to him, Go down to Egypt and tell Pharaoh that I am that I am sent you. Do you know why Habakkuk reminded himself of this? Because there were people in his day going around saying that God was dead. There always are. There's absolutely nothing new in this. Let's get rid of this egotistical idea that we are the first generation that has had any problems. They've had they have happened to all the people before us. This is nothing new. While people ran around saying that God was dead, Habakkuk went right back to what he had learned about God. God is self-existent and cannot die. I am that I am. Third, Habakkuk reminds himself of the holiness of God. He refers to my holy one. Habakkuk reminds himself that God's holiness does not allow him to look on sin, that the enemy was his tool to execute judgment, not the total destruction of Judah. After the prophet reminds himself of this, he immediately adds the word, we shall not die. What does he mean? Well, he's thinking about the fact that God has made a covenant with Abraham God promised Abraham that he would raise up a nation that would forever be his people and that he would never allow them to be eliminated from the earth. Now in 722, the ten northern tribes were taken away from and destroyed. But the two southern tribes, which are Judah that Habakkuk is talking about, uh, will never be eliminated when... when, uh, when the Chaldeans or the Babylonians take them, many of them are taken into captivity rather than being destroyed. The prophet is reminding himself that in the face of this fearsome threat, the Chaldeans are going to come rolling across this land. He will see his own beloved Jerusalem ravished and captured and his people taken away into captivity. But there is the reminder that God is not going to let the worst happen. They will not die. They will not be eliminated. God's faithfulness remains. He is unchangeable. So the prophet comes now to a conclusion that settles at least the first part of his problem. He says in verse 12, Now I understand why you are raising up the Chaldeans. It's your way of waking my people up to their folly, to their awful stupidity and turning away from you. They think they can live without you. And yet, how many times have you sent prophets to them, pleading, begging, reminding them of your word? You've poured out blessing after blessing upon them, and still they go on in their senseless folly, taking it all for granted, 
thinking they can go on living without you. Now I see what you're doing. You're raising up a people to shock them into reality, to awaken and chastise them. I understand this now. Then the prophet says, I see that, but now I have another problem. And Habakkuk goes on to describe the wickedness of the Chaldeans. Now he says, I can see how you're raising up this nation to punish these people, but I don't understand this. Despite the wickedness of my own people, they're not as bad as the Chaldeans. How is it that you're using a wicked, godless, ruthless people like this to punish your own people? This I don't understand. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard anybody say, it's true that America has problems and maybe are kind of a wicked people, but we're not as bad as China or Russia or the radical Muslims or whoever else might be our enemies at the time. God won't let these people take over here because after all, they're far worse than we are. So the prophet says, I don't understand this. And since he does not know what to do, he follows the fourth step. He leaves the problem with God. Now that's a very wise thing to do because our human minds do not grasp all the intricacies of history. There is so much that we do not understand. So at this point, many people say, it must mean there isn't any God, or God is not like the Bible says he is, or I can't believe this. If God explained to me what he was going to do, I can't believe him any longer. If he won't explain, then I can't believe him. But the prophet says, well, I don't understand, but you are mightier than I, and I will just wait for you to reveal it to me. Notice how he begins chapter 2. First, Habakkuk says that he is going to get away from the problem for a while. I'm going to leave the matter with God and wait for him to take the next step. I've gone as far as I can. I've reasoned from the character of God. I know that he has eyes purer than to look upon evil. He does not like evil. He has no complicity with it. I know that. And yet he is raising up these evil people. I don't understand. But I will let God explain it to me. And I will wait for an answer. How often do we keep pushing to try to get an answer from God that we can't even understand? Can you do this? When you bring a problem to God and explain it to Him in prayer, do you get up and start worrying about it again? Hmm. <laughs> How is this going to work out? What do I do next? That's the thing that defeats us so many times. But the prophet leaves it there. He says, it's up to you. In verse 2, the Lord answers Habakkuk. He says, Habakkuk, I'm going to tell you the answer. Now I want you to write it down. And I want you to write it down so plainly that anyone who reads it will be able to immediately tell the answer abroad and spread it all over the land. Then God adds these significant verses in ver words in verse 3. Habakkuk, this isn't going to happen right away. There's going to be a lapse of time, but it will come. We expect God to answer right now. And if it doesn't, then he's not working for us. This is a character of God's revelation. First, God says that an event will happen. 
Then he says, don't you worry about what happens in between. Even though it looks like everything is going wrong, what I have said will happen, is going to happen. And if it seems to delay, wait for it. It will come. Then God goes on to state a principle that is quoted three times in the New Testament and forms the basis for the greatest movements that God has ever had among human beings. In verse 4 he says, Behold, he whose soul is not upright in him shall fall, but the righteous shall live by faith. That is the verse that Paul bases Romans on and to some extent Galatians. It's also found in Hebrews. Uh, This is the word that lit a fire in the heart of Martin Luther and brought about the great reformation. The righteous shall live by faith. Not by circumstances or by observations or by reasoning, but by faith in what God has said will happen. In these words, the prophet is showing that there are only two possible outlooks on life. There are only two attitudes by which we can face life. Either we face it in faith, depending upon God, or we face it in unbelief, depending on our own ability to reason everything out. These are the only two fundamental attitudes. You can, excuse me, you can only have one or the other. If you look around, you will see that every human being on the face of the earth can be put into one of these two categories, either facing life by faith depending on God, or we face it in unbelief, depending on our own abilities to reason out everything. Look at the, men, the stories of the men and women in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. How did they change the world of their day? It says that they endured as seeing one who is invisible. They were not expecting man to do anything. They were expecting God to work. And God always did work. As he worked, things began to change. And the history of that kind of working is an amazing success story of men and women who stopped the mouths of lions, subdued kingdoms, toppled thrones, won empires, and changed the course of history. Not by counting on men to work, but by counting on God. As you look at what's happening in America today, are you looking for political answers or are you looking to God? I think most of us have a tendency to look for something to happen in politics that's going to save America. But my friends, the only thing that is going to bring America, is, is going to help America is when you and I follow what God said to Solomon in Second Corinthians 7. Second Chronicles 11.14 If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. Politics will never change America into what God wants it to be. Throughout the rest of the chapter then, there's a very interesting analysis of the Chaldeans and what God plans to do to them. To summarize, God says to the prophet in verses 5 and 6, Now Habakkuk, 
Don't you worry about the Chaldeans. It is true that I have purer eyes than to behold evil. And it is also true that I am raising up this people to judge the nation of Israel. But in turn, I will judge the Chaldeans. The very things in which they trust will prove to be their downfall. Their very gods will overthrow them. And then Jehovah pronounces five woes on these peoples, starting in 6b. Woe to the man who lives by the philosophy, I will get everything I can, and it doesn't matter how, to do it, how I do it. Woe to the fellow who is devoting all his efforts toward being secure and safe in his old age. God says that he will find the foundations pulled out from under him, and everything he has invested himself in will be swept away. Woe to those who trust in violence to achieve what they want. Woe to the man who creates fear in those around him in order to rule over them and to gain from them. And woe to the man who trusts a false god who thinks that the forces around him are able to control him, give him life, and fulfill his desires. And finally, we move on into chapter 3, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And I'll tell you right now, I have never in 40 years been able to read all the way through it without tears. So, just fair warning, I've got a handkerchief, don't you? Know, I'll be all right. Uh, in chapter 3, the prophet concludes with a most remarkable prayer. Here he has seen his answer. God is the God of history, and He is moving. He has everything under control. In the first 15 verses, Habakkuk reviews God's interaction with and for His people throughout history, and a deep understanding comes over him. Now, in the interest of time, I'm not going to break this passage down, but if you read through it, it's pretty easy to see where the various phrases in there refer to the history of Israel and how God worked. But I challenge you, do it at home. Go through it. Figure it all out. See the various ways God worked during Israel's earlier history and let it be an encouragement to your faith. Habakkuk began the book by saying, Lord, why don't you do something? Then in chapter 3, 2, he says, Lord, be careful, don't do too much. In wrath, remember mercy. I see you're working, Lord, but remember in the midst of it all that you are still a God of mercy. That is all he has to say. There's no more philosophy, no more theology, no more arguing with God. He reviews what God has done in the past and his faith is strengthened. He rests upon events that have already occurred, events which cannot be questioned or taken away or shaken in any way. The great fact that God has already moved in human history. And this is where faith must rest. We do not live by blind faith. We live with a God who has acted in time and space and is recorded in His Word. We do not live... We live with a God who has acted in time and space, who has done something who has indelibly recorded his will in the progress of human events. 
As the prophet thinks of all of this, his mind goes out to the greatness of God. And this is the way he concludes verses, verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My steps totter beneath me. I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. He sees the problem. He knows it's coming. The fearsomeness of it grips him, and he feels the pressure. But that is not all. He adds in verses 17 through 19 one of the greatest statements of personal faith found anywhere in Scripture. Though the fig tree does not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. Though the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Though there's nothing to eat, nothing to drink, there's no way to make a living, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. My friends, real joy and rejoicing only comes through an intimate and personal relationship with the Lord so that even those in the worst circumstances can smile. You know, I think so often, I, I, I still wear this, you know, one with them the people, in, especially in the Middle East, the believers who are struggling, the believers who are being martyred day after day after day. Um, the worst circumstances you can think of. Many of them have opportunities to leave, but they stay to be a witness to those who don't know Jesus Christ. What would you and I do if we were there? God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like hinds feet. He makes me tread upon my high places. Habakkuk the prophet said he could move joyfully through difficult circumstances. Though his legs trembled, verse 16, at the awesome theophany of God, that same Lord was his joy, in verse 18, his strength, in verse 19, and assurance. Furthermore, God enabled the prophet to walk on the heights. Not only would he bound through trials, he would also climb to the mountaintops of victory and triumph. Have you discovered the joy and strength and the endurance that only God can give? That though the problem remains and the pressure is still there, there can be a strengthening of the inner man that makes the heart rejoice and be glad even in the midst of difficulty. That is what Habakkuk discovered. The Lord himself, he says, is my strength. And that is the New Testament truth. That is the great secret of a Christian life. Not that God takes the problem away, but that in him we overcome the problem. Now, if you're here this morning 
and you've not yet experienced the strength that comes from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, please don't walk out that door without opening your heart to Him. Let's pray. Father God, you love us more than we can ever begin to understand. Your word is always true. You are always faithful. You strengthen us. You give us joy and peace. Father, I pray if there are any here this morning who've never experienced that, God, that you would work in their hearts, that they would hear you tapping on their heart's door, that they open their heart to you, and that you would come in and sup with them. Thank you, Father, for this great little book of Habakkuk. So many lessons in it that we never even touched on today. Father, continue to use your word to strengthen us, to encourage us, to help us walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.